Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Beautiful. It was only the second foreign film ever nominated for Best Picture, and the actor Roberto Benigni won Best Actor that year at the Academy Awards. It's the story of Italian Jews sent to concentration camps during World War II, father and son to one and mother to another. Surrounded by squalor and fear, the brave father chose to make up a fantastic story to cover up the horrors of the camp and to help his son survive the Holocaust. As the guards were barking orders in German, he tells his son in Italian that these men are just playing an elaborate game, putting players through challenges like little food and horrible sleeping conditions and hard work. And those who survive these challenges without crying or fussing will win an amazing prize, something the boy has wanted so very badly. They get to ride in a tank. Well, the little boy in this story is faced with very real injustice and suffering. He can see it with his own eyes, and he contends with a lot of competing voices in his head. Who will he listen to? The people and the guards around him? His own opinion about what is going on? Or will he listen to the voice of his loving father? The book of Job tells a similar story. The main character, Job, faces very real injustice and suffering, and he faces the same challenge. Which voice will Job listen to? The external voices of his wife and friends? The internal voice of his own despair? Or the eternal voice of his loving father? We often read the book of Job as an attempt to understand suffering, but I think the question the book sets out to answer is, can God be trusted when we suffer? Is he, in fact, a good and loving father? Well, I want you to open your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages, and I want you to follow along. But we're going to start by setting the stage in Job 1 and 2. I'm going to give you a paraphrased introduction, so I want you to follow along. It starts off in Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, he's living before the time of Abraham and in a land that was never considered part of Israel's territory. But even so, it continues in verse 1, He was blameless, not sinless, but blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now we know he had a family. He had a wife and ten children, seven sons and three daughters who seemed to like each other. At least they liked to party together. He was materially very wealthy. The text said that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a lot of servants. We know he was also a good man. Look in verse 3. It said he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he was well-respected and he was honorable. But even more impressive, God thought a lot of Job. We get this behind-the-scenes glimpse of God having what seems like a casual conversation with Satan, who has been roaming the earth and looking for trouble. And unprovoked, it's God who initiates the conversation with Satan. He says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Wow, 
That's pretty high praise and commendation from God. He's going to repeat that again. God is so confident that Job will trust him no matter what, that he allows Satan the ability to take away all that Job has, his children, his wealth, his possessions, and then later his health, allowing Job to be covered with painful boils from head to toe. Even through all of this, we read in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, that Job in his great sorrow worshipped God and did not sin or charge God with wrong. We leave him in chapter 2, verse 8, sitting outside the city, scraping his itching and burning skin with a broken piece of pottery. Now that's really bad. That's Holocaust kind of suffering. And so today I want you to put yourself in Job's shoes. I want you to bring whatever suffering you may be facing to this story, whether it's loss or hardship or a debilitating diagnosis, whatever it is, stripped of all the other distractions in your life, which voice are you most likely to pay attention to? So let's start with the external voices that Job hears. We see that he's bombarded with a lot of advice from his wife and his friends, but I'm going to try to summarize it all in two short points. Right away, we see his wife tell him that God is not good. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now can you imagine not sinning with your lips, even when your spouse is out of line? It's hard for me. But seriously, I think this is an assumption that we often make. And how can we blame this woman? She's just lost her ten children. But I think she's saying something like, I just can't take this anymore. God may be good, but he's not good to me. Let's quit. And literally, I have wrestled with that thought in intense times of suffering. And Job assures his wife, and he assures us, that that's just not true. But then his three friends chime in in chapters 2 through 26. And these three guys actually got off to a really good start. They were mourning and sitting with Job for seven whole days before they spoke. But they, like many of us, listening to Job moan and complain, wore on them. And they finally just felt this burning need to try to explain his suffering to him. So I'm going to sum up 24 chapters with this basic argument. Job, you're no good. Either you or your children or both have done something wrong, so God is obviously punishing you. Now, they tried to soften it up by saying some nice things about Job, but in general, they just couldn't accept the fact that maybe they didn't have a clue as to why Job was enduring such great loss. And their words were like pouring salt into his wounds. Let's look at a few brief examples. Look in chapter 4, verse 8, where Eliaphaz said, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, Job, you get what you deserve. Then his friend Bildad adds insult to Job as a father in chapter 8, verse 4, when he said, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. 
Can you imagine someone saying that to you about your dead children? And then Zophar added to it when he said in chapter 11, verse 14, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. They really just want him to fix this problem, to repent, and maybe all of this suffering will magically stop. Eliaphaz sums it up in chapter 22, verse 23, when he says, If you will return to the Almighty, you will be restored. Even the younger friend, Elihu, who we met in chapters 32 through 37, says in chapter 34, verse 11, He, God, repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. Now what these friends said isn't always wrong. Sometimes as friends, we do have to confront sin in love. But in this case, these guys had no evidence of sin. They simply thought Job must be sinning based on his suffering. And this is where they went so wrong. We know that Job has done nothing that is being punished here because the narrator let us know that in the beginning. God is pleased with Job. God is trustworthy and he is confident that Job's trust will remain securely in him no matter what. God himself confirmed how wrong these friends were in Job 42 verse 7 when he said to Eliaphaz, My anger burns against you and against your friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Well, next we turn to Job's internal struggle, the voices in his own head. All throughout this conversation with his friends, Job is really struggling within. He says over and over that he wishes that he had never been born and that he longs to die. God, please just put me out of my misery. And I can so relate to him in times of darkness in my own life. But then in chapters 27 through 31, Job has this long soliloquy of self-reflection. He's clearly miserable, but he upholds the sovereignty and the integrity of God throughout. He's deeply frustrated, but he's just not willing to blame God for it. Now, this is not an all-exhaustive list, but I've tried to summarize Job's thoughts in the following. Okay, God, I can suffer if you'll just give me an explanation, vindication, and mediation. So first, Job needs an explanation. It starts back in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. In other words, he's saying, God, please explain this to me. Job trusts God's wisdom. You'll see in chapter 28, starting in verse 12, I think one of my favorite parts of the, of the book. Job says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. But God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. It's like he's saying, please, God, show me your wisdom. Help me to understand why this is happening. Then 
he moves to a desperate need for vindication. It's like he's saying to God, I want you to let everyone else know that I don't deserve this. I don't know about you, but I hate to be falsely accused. And so I could just see myself wishing for the same thing. Look in chapter 29, where Job is longing to go back to the way it was before all has been taken away from him. In chapter 29, verse 21, we see that he was respected. It says, men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. I smiled on them, and when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. But then in chapter 30, verse 1, he says, but now these same men laugh at me. And in verse 10, they abhor me. Then in chapter 31, he starts to make a long list of if-then statements, asking God to write this injustice. Like in, in 31, verse 6, when he says, If I have walked with falsehood, let me be weighed in a just balance, and let God decide. In essence, Job wrestles with God, like Jacob did when he rest, wrestled all night with the angel. He's in agony. He says that his soul is poured out within him and days of affliction have taken hold of him. And yet he declares what we sang earlier this morning in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Well, finally, Job knows that he needs a mediator. He needs someone to plead his case. He declares so confidently in chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God. Now, how did Job know to declare that his witness is in heaven, that he who testifies for him is on high? And who is this person in whom he puts his faith and confidence? Well, it's Jesus Christ, his Redeemer, long before anyone ever told Job to long for him. We see in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, where he declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job knows that he cannot do this alone. He reaches for something beyond his chapter 38. God speaks. So lastly, let's consider the eternal voice of his father. First, I want us to consider how he speaks. If we're not careful, we'll quickly read over chapter 38, verse 1. But I want us to think about it for just a minute. It says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... That reminds me of another story that we covered last fall in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah was in utter despair, and he too wanted to die, just like Job, and he went looking for God at Mount Sinai. And it was there that the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. He calmed the wind and the fire and the earthquake, and he spoke to Elijah in the silence of a whisper. That same imagery is found here in Job 38. God is speaking where Job can hear him, even out of the chaos and the force of this great wind. And the fact that Job could hear that voice at all probably made him want to fall on his face in fear and in worship. But God had a lot to say, and so we want to consider what God said. First of all, God says nothing about an explanation. He simply changes the subject and says, Let me ask you a few questions, Job. Look in 38, verses 2 and 3. Who is this that, count, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Ouch. Those words seem harsh. But it just keeps going and going and going with questions like, Can you lead all the animals? Or can you lift up your voice to the clouds and command water to pour forth? All the way down to 39, verse 30, which is maybe one of my favorite one-liners, when God says, Do the thunderbolts report to you before they're hurled to the earth? It's like he's saying to Job, Do you think you can be like me? Why don't you just trust me? And then, as far as vindication is concerned, God asks Job, Do you, Job, know how to best administer justice? And extend grace. In chapter 40, verse 8, God challenges Job when he says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? It's as if God is asking Job, Must I be condemned so that you can be justified? Seems like an arrogant thing for Job to have said, but I think more surprising is that God's final answer to that question, the gospel answer, is yes. Your vindication, Job, will come in the, in the form of redemption, a mediator who will indeed plead your case. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 tells us, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So no, God doesn't answer Job's questions, but the cross reminded Job before it happened, and it reminds you and me after it has happened, that it's not because God didn't care or because God doesn't love us. God cared so much that he's going to take everything wrong and he's going to make it right. And he loved us so much that he gave his only son for Job and for us. So which voice do you think Job listened to? Let's examine the result. Notice Job's response to God, his father's eternal and awe-inspiring voice in chapter 42, verses 2 through 6. Job says, I know, God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. 
I think this is the most powerful line. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here Job saw God clearly. He experienced his glory and his power and his goodness all wrapped up in a whirlwind. And Job repented. He literally took back all of his requests. He worshipped just like Elijah did on Mount Sinai. He turned to the only one who had the words of life, and he rested in him no matter what. Job had a right perspective of God, and thus he was able to see himself and others rightly. I think Job had a totally new perspective. Let's look at a few of them. He had a new perspective about his circumstances. Notice here in this response that Job's possessions seemed to be the farthest thing from his mind and heart. He didn't demand that God give him anything in order to worship him. The glory of God put his physical and his physical fitness into perspective. Job learned something that I think God wants us to learn. Blessings are not safe for you to have unless you're willing to worship and serve God without them. Yes, Job's body would later heal and he would receive a double portion of the possessions that he had lost. But that wasn't the point. Whether you get the healing or not, whether you receive the vindication that you think you deserve or not, we can learn from Job that we can trust God with all of our heart, and all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, no matter what. That, I think, is wisdom. Job also had a new perspective on forgiveness. After God rebuked Job's friends back in chapter 42, he commanded them in 42 verse 8 to offer a burnt sacrifice, an offering of atonement. He said that Job would pray for those friends and that God would hear his prayer. Can you imagine? If Job was like me, he may have secretly hoped that God would make those friends suffer for all of the pain that they had caused him. But instead, he was supposed to pray for them, the ones who had falsely accused him. God would forgive them based on Job's mediation, just like he forgives us based on Christ's mediation. And finally, Job had a new perspective on loss. Did you notice that when Job was receiving a double portion of all he had lost, he didn't receive a double blessing of children? Ten children died, and then he had ten more, not twenty more. Why? Because with ten more, he did have twenty children. Ten were with God, and ten were with him, but they were all alive. Job instinctively knew what God has assured us in the New Testament, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death. Well, the end of the movie, Life is Beautiful, is so very moving. The father believed liberation to be near, and so he asked his son to endure one final challenge, to hide in a box and not to make a sound until he was crowned the winner of the game. The son gladly obeyed. But the father wasn't so lucky. As he was being led to his own execution, the father passed by the box that his son was in, and he still found a way to comfort him with joy 
want you to watch this short clip. Friends, Job experienced that kind of comfort in his suffering. He saw God with his own eyes. Confident of the voice and the love of his father, he endured to the end. So may we be like this little boy this morning. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, where he lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray together. God, we just are in awe of you. We worship you together. We're so thankful that you have given us your son, the mediator, the ransom for us all. And God, he lives to make intercession for us on our behalf. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us wisdom and insight and helping us as we have read and studied this amazing book that you've given us in your word. God, would you help us to to, to take the words to heart and to put them into practice this week as we, as we live for you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.